0: We created specially built machines and we hired teams to locate inside the warehouse to be able to access the CDs and type in all the information about the record, the artist, the song title, etc. Extract a fingerprint, which is what Shazam uses to identify music, replace the CDs back on the shelf. That's how we created that first fingerprint library. Dear Raj,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you very much for agreeing to tell your story. So just in case the story of building one of the world's most innovative and popular products of all time sends people to sleep, just to summarize, the long story short is that Shazam was created in 1999 Mm -hmm. by co-founders Chris Barton, Philip Inglebrecht, Avery Wang and Diraj Mukherjee, who is our esteemed guest today. And since its launch, over 30 billion Shazams have been sent via their app, which has been downloaded over one billion times, which is a ridiculous number. So 18 years after it was founded, it sees 100 million users flock to its service every single month. But we're going to assume it wasn't always that way. And as such... We would probably like to hear less from me and more from you. So for the main event, in your own words, Mm -hmm. it's 1999. Mm -hmm. You're at Stanford University, then what? How
0: old were you at the point of the starting of Shazam? Um, Sure, so I was actually at Stanford Business School from 1995 to 97. So I just happened to be in Silicon Valley just when the internet was starting up. And so it was just an easy bandwagon to jump onto. And uh, I joined a company called Vine, which was an internet consulting firm, building digital businesses for big companies like banks and uh, entertainment companies like Universal Music at one point was my client. And my business partner, uh, Chris Barton, his dad is English, his mother's French, and he loves Europe. So he ended up doing an internship at Microsoft uh, in London. That was the summer of 98, if I'm right. I, unfortunately, my visa to the US ran out, so they kicked me out unceremoniously. So I ended up in London, sort of hiding out for a few months. This was in the days when we gave visas in London, obviously. Uh, Yes, that's true. I'm I'm perfectly legal, by the way, I hasten (laughs) to add, so I'm here legitimately. But uh, we were sort of caught up in this craze of entrepreneurship and we said, let's be entrepreneurs. Now we didn't have any particular ideas. We didn't have any, you know, appropriate skills. We just drank beers and tried to, you know, become entrepreneurs that way. So that's how it all started.
1: Okay, so, you know, jumping forward in your story, 1999 is how many years into your life? How old were you? Oh, so I was... 30 years old then okay so so what have you achieved by the time you were 30 so looking back yeah. like there's the shazam era and that's obviously your legacy what people are always going to remember you by who was dheeraj until you were 30 where were you born
0: where did you grow up how did
1: you migrate
0: over that way sure i didn't realize that i'd have to uh, disclose my age as part of this process so unfortunately I'm embarrassed yes. in front of all these people I but... I am, yeah. <laughs> so that would make you 48 <laughs> by calculation can we edit okay. that out please thank you. <laughs> so i i was born in india My dad worked for Air India, so I grew up sort of all over the place. We lived in Athens, we lived in Paris, we lived in Tokyo, we lived in Singapore, we lived in Geneva, so a bit of a a mishmash. And I ended up for university in the US. I went to Dartmouth College in rural New Hampshire, almost by accident, because when I was in school in Bombay, all my friends there were applying for university in the US. And once I was there, although I had a fantastic experience, I felt it was going to be warmer in California, so I set my heart on on being on the West Coast, uh, strictly for you know weather reasons. And I was lucky enough to get into Stanford Business School. I'd spent three years working for a management consulting company called Bain & Company in San Francisco, which, by the way, has terrible weather, so avoid if possible in the summertime. But um, I just you know enjoyed that that lifestyle, I guess, on, on the West Coast, and that's how I ended up there. And then after that i i worked in san francisco for a few years but i I was missing europe i missed being close to my family in india i missed the culture and and that's why when i had the opportunity to move to london in 99 i seized it with both hands
1: but like growing up i mean what you've done is um beyond innovative let's be real you've created uh, a real solution to a problem so that takes a certain mind and at no point have you disclosed anything about you know entrepreneurship around you. Did you grow up with any of those influences around you? I mean, what led you down that path? Because going into the Bain route seems one way, but that's not typically the
0: entrepreneurship path. So, what were the influences that caused that? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I didn't really have any entrepreneurial role models as such. My my granddad was a was a big inspiration for me. So my my grandfather was, he was the commander in chief of the Indian Navy, and his philosophy was. If you put your mind to it, you can make it happen. And uh, to get into... He's in a bit of a position to say that, though, let's be honest. <laughs> well, I've got a million people following me. You know, <laughs> yeah, probably. If you put your mind to it. So he... Um, I'm Bengali. I'm from Calcutta. And uh, Bengalis have a reputation for being intellectuals, will talk a lot, and not particularly, you know, military. But he bucked that trend, and he decided that's what he wanted to do because he wanted to travel the world. Uh, when I was growing up, I always went to local schools, so uh, I uh, learned English when I was in Athens because it was in a British school. but when we moved to Paris, I learned French because I was with a bunch of French kids, moved back to Calcutta and was you know the new kid. We moved to Geneva and I was back in a French environment. so I guess the constant kind of moving around made me more adaptable or more open to new experiences, I guess you know accepting the unfamiliar and the unpredictable, but that's about it. I didn't show any signs of business acumen whatsoever when I was growing up. Did you have brothers or sisters? I have a younger brother, yes. And what's he ended up doing? He is an educator. So he studied at uh, Harvard Education School. He works for the University of Peace in Costa Rica. And he set up an executive education program to help uh, young people who want to be social entrepreneurs. But he was actually much more entrepreneurial than I was. I remember he used to rent out his bicycle for kids to drive around when we were you know, eight years old for marbles, so maybe, maybe I learned it from him. Maybe <laughs> no, he couldn't tell you what something they was listening to around, so it's irrelevant.
1: <laughs> what about you know, actually growing up? What kind of kid were you? How would
0: you describe yourself as a child? Uh, I was a, a total geek. I mean, I was uh, terribly bookish, not good at sports, and my, my mother encouraged me to join the Boy Scouts just to get a bit of fresh air. And I was just like a, a slow starter, a late, late bloomer, you know. But that, that's my memories of, of being, being a kid. And you've got three kids now, so right. what do you see in them that reminds you of yourself? Well... Fortunately, my kids are much more talented than I am because m- my mother is a wonderful singer. My dad's very musical. It completely skipped me, so I've got no musical talent whatsoever. I think that's an unusual statement from the founder of Shazam. <laughs> no, no. You found your way into musical talent in your own way, but no, that's exactly right because yeah. my business partner uh, would sit there and go. What's that song? I don't know. What, what do you think? I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, that's exactly how we came up with this thing in the first place, because we were both entirely clueless. <laughs> but luckily, my, my daughter is much more musical. She paints beautifully. My son makes wonderful things out of Lego. Any time we buy any flat-pack furniture, I escape the house. I leave it to my wife to assemble, because I'm absolutely useless at that stuff. And uh, my youngest one, who's four years old, he's super athletic. I was always like the last kid to be picked for the football team because, you know, somebody had to, you know, make up the numbers. But no, so, yeah, I'm really fortunate. Yeah, that's so there's sort of 11, 8 and 4 going on 5.
1: OK, so let's let's take it back to 1999 now that yeah. we've identified where that comes from. So you're tone deaf, you have no idea what any song is and you just haven't got
0: a clue every time you're sitting around. So is that really how it started? Like, give us a bit of a story around Sure, but I have a, a, a story deep appreciation that. for music. So okay. what that means is... I enjoy listening to music, I'm sensitive to it, but I I can't play an instrument to save my life. If you want the room emptied at the end of this, I can sing and then people will leave in a a rush. Will we be able to identify the song? uh, Impossible. Okay. Um, However, my business partner, Chris, is worse than me, and I, I can say that with confidence, because. I was with him uh, recently, participating in trying to identify music, and and he is hopeless. So he came up with the idea for Shazam, and he would constantly wonder what song he was listening to, and his idea was, if he could connect with all the radio stations and get a feed of what music they were playing, then he would be able to name that tune. And he was at Berkeley Business School at the time, and one of his professors had said, if you want to think strategically, uh, ask yourself the question, what would be better than your business? What would make your business go bankrupt? And he thought, you know, what would be even better than that would be if you could use your mobile phone to identify music. So that's where the idea for Shazam came from originally. Okay, so you've got this idea,
1: like how did you guys come, you know, there's four of you, which is awesome, actually, because a lot of a lot of companies struggle from just too much workload on one person. It sounds like you guys all have very specific roles. Who were they? How did you split up your roles? How did you guys meet? How did that journey start? We
0: started off, we wanted to be entrepreneurs, what I call, we were wantrepreneurs. And Chris, I'm sorry this is on record, but you know, he had a series of very average ideas. But uh, even now, people say to me, oh, it's a great idea. And I agree. But at the time when Chris and I were having this conversation, I kept coming up with objections. So I said, yeah, but you know, we don't have the technology. So he said, oh, we'll just have to, you know, invent it. And he wanted to identify any song which anyone could hear on the radio, in a bar, in a club. But we didn't have any music. And my client at the time was a record label. I said, how are we going to get the music? And he said, oh, we'll just, you know, talk to the record labels. I'm sure we can sort it out. I said, no, I don't think so, because they don't have a digital copy of every single song. And then I said, what about a business model, like, how are we going to make money? He said, when people identify music using our service, they will buy a CD. I said, look, there's a new thing there called Napster, where people can download pretty much any song for free. So I don't think we're going to be send- selling a lot of CDs. So I had a great job at the time, you know, love the company I was working for. But I did a little spreadsheet to calculate, you know, what are the chances of this business succeeding? So. Chances of us inventing the technology. Chances of us finding all the music. Chances of getting the funding, building the business. And it came out to 4% by my calculations. And I thought, ah, that seems like a good go. So I quit my job and, and jumped into this venture with Chris. Clearly not good at making predictions or going with the right gut. So. No, I was off by at least a factor of 10. It was yeah. probably you know 0.4%, if that. But Chris had a secret weapon. So his, like, really good friend at business school was a third co-founder called Philippe Inglebraith. Now, Philippe is just a superman. I mean, he is an unbelievable at getting stuff done. And I'd never met the guy before, but I trusted Chris and took his word for it. And so that was the three of us sort of in this venture together. The problem was, you know, we didn't have, like, a technical neuron between the three of us. So we had to go and find somebody to invent the technology and that was Dr Avery Wang who's our fourth partner and you know much smarter than the other three of us put together it's amazing so you've literally started one of the
1: most ambitious projects in music technology ever existed between three people and not one of you can code or or anything practical like
0: not even music, mu- musical experience at that point you're going to call us stupid I can tell this is coming it, it, it was uh, I'd what? rather you said it than me hey. <laughs> <laughs> it was rash and foolhardy, but um, we, we were lucky in the beginning and we've been lucky many times over because we didn't even know what domain of science we're talking about. It turns out it was digital signal processing, and the experts in that domain were at Stanford and Berkeley University, which is where Chris and Philippe were finishing up their MBAs. So they concentrated their efforts in their second year, talking to the experts in the field, speaking to PhDs, And they managed to get the head of Stanford's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, a professor called uh, Dr. Julius Smith. And they asked him, they said, Dr. Smith, who are the best PhD students you've had in your last 25 years here? And Julius gave them a list of people. And Avery was at the very top of that list. Amazing.
1: So did you actually try and raise money or anything before Avery came on
0: board? No, we didn't try to raise money before Avery came on board because we knew that the proof of the pudding was going to be in that technology. And uh, how many
1: months are we talking? Like, you know, you guys, are now you're a three and you're looking for this magical fourth co-founder that is essentially the guy that is going to build the technology so the rest of you can do your thing. Yes. How many
0: months was there in between you guys, you three getting together and Avery joining? Yes, yeah, so it was uh, October 1999 that we started talking about the idea. Mm. I was working in London, Chris and Philippe were finishing up the MBA, and it took about four or five months just for them talking to people, you know, interviewing scientists without giving the idea away, because we were paranoid about giving the idea away. And I remember I quit my job in March of 2000. Coincidentally, for the aged in this room, is when the internet bubble was basically at its peak, the, the NASDAQ was at its peak, and then it went uh, pretty much downhill from there.
1: So, you've got this fourth genius on board, and then you're going out to raise money for something that's never existed before. Doesn't really make sense, presumably, to
0: most people, and you're doing it at the time after the bubbles burst. Yes and no. So, the good news was that because there were three of us business types, so we were all over writing the business plan. We had enough energy to contact prospective investors. We had a fantastic financial model which spelled out what a wonderful business there was going to be. And poor Avery was locked in his basement trying desperately to invent this technology. We gave him three months. We said, you know, by by summertime, we need to hit the road and raise raise funding. So he was heads down trying to, you know, shut out the noise of his two kids at the time and invent this. And literally... On schedule he managed to create the demo which then let us go to market and raise the first round of funding in the summer of 2000 but before the bubble had completely burst it was sort of deflating but there wasn't blood on the streets quite yet and where did you raise that first money and and how much did you raise so we raised a million dollars from a range of private investors we reached out to people who had a background in music or work for a mobile phone company or understood technology. And the the clincher really was showing them the demo. And people would say, wow, like you can really do that with 15 seconds of music with a lot of background noise and interference and the distortion which comes from the microphone of a mobile? We ended up in some very interesting places. I remember we met with the chairman of EMI in his penthouse in uh, overlooking the Thames. And they'd all say, very interesting, I need to speak to my wife before I can make a decision. That was the the usual pattern. I mean, just to give some idea on how incredible that technology really is,
1: it's 2017 and Rich gets upset if I touch the table because it ruins the recording. <laughs> so just imagine how amazing that really is from Avery. Okay. How did you actually describe Shazam to your first investors? Like, you know, it's so obvious now, you just Shazam it. It's a word, it's a verb, it's in the dictionary, everything. What did you say back then? How did you set this in someone's mind or could you only do that with
0: a product demo? Uh, no, I think it was as simply saying, name that tune from your, from your mobile. And it was an idea which I think resonated with almost everyone mm-hmm. because it's just one of those scratches which, uh, itches that everyone feels, and you've got to scratch. And we tapped into that, and the demo really kind of brought it to life. But I think the concept was was very simple. And back then, there weren't that many businesses which were built for the mobile phone because the text message, the SMS, had only just been invented. I mean, it was literally it's still quite early days. And most startups back then were still internet businesses, whereas we foresaw that the mobile would become the main kind of way that we accessed technology. And, and that's why we, we stood out, I guess, you know, it just made sense for most people.
1: And you're coming up and showing someone the technology, but, you know, you're shazamming it. Where did that name come from? Because when I'm doing research on, yes. on, on the story and I type Shazam in, I get a lot of... I mean, obviously I get the first page as all Shazam, but then I get loads of like random references to all this bizarre Shazam cult hero figure, etc. So, yeah, that's right. Is it from
0: that? Or? No, so Shazam was actually just a code name. So Chris liked the sound of the word Shazam. And uh, we just kind of kept it uh, as part of our code name. And then we spent energy trying to find a better name, because back then you had your your address book, and if you hear a song and you wanted to identify it, we thought it would have to be right at the very top. So one of the names we were working with was Aardvark, which has two A's. And then we were trying to find pictures of Aardvarks to turn into a logo, it was a a disaster. And then we came up with a better idea, which was if we had a four-digit short code, which you could dial to be able to access this number, then that would be much better, and so we negotiated with every operator in the UK the same shortcode, which is two five eight zero, just straight down the middle of the mobile. We thought that would be easy for people to remember. Of course, they all forgot the name. What, what, what's the number again? I, I can't remember. We paid consultants to come up with a different name. Couldn't come up with anything better, and so we stuck with Shazam. And looking back now, it fits well with what the service does. So, so we're glad we held on to them. Yeah, agreed. You've raised a million dollars at this point. How did you say you were
1: gonna spend it? What does a million dollars actually do? Is it paying the four of you? Are you hiring extra people? How long does it last
0: you until you need to raise money again? No, so we started hiring people because there were lots and lots of people who were out of work. So by this time, the company I worked for, Vient, I set up the, the UK office in 99. We went from four to 40 in a year. We went from 40 down back to zero in the next year. Uh, because basically it went bust within 12 months. And so I had the rare opportunity to hire some top-class engineers who I'd worked with before, who I'd in some cases interviewed before. So we had a base of people who knew each other, had a similar sort of like work style, and that gave us a foundation. And uh, I think we were about 10 people when the venture capital round, which would then let us kind of accelerate the hiring. So what was it like in that first
1: year? Was it painful? Was it fun? Was it exciting? Was it a complete nightmare? Where
0: were you actually working? So we had an office on uh, Wardour Street, not far oh. from here. And it was an amazing time to be, you know, in the heart of Soho in the summer of 2000. And when you are a self-styled entrepreneur and you can make it up as you go along, it's 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 the best feeling. We did have some setbacks. So for instance, we had a a Belgian investor come and visit and our next door neighbours on Wardour Street was called Dirty Harris um, so that put him off and I, unfortunately there'd also been a, I think there'd been a, a, a homicide that day on that street so there was like loads of cops and police tape all around so that made them seriously worry about what they were getting into but no it, there's almost no better feeling than when you start your own business and you've got these, these dreams of what it can be before the reality starts to, to bite. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you've got a million dollars. How long did it last you compared to how long you thought it was going to last you? Did you get into any problems raising the next round or was it all very smooth? Give us some insight into what happened from that first round into a venture capital round. How much did you raise? How easy
0: was it, etc.? So we started fundraising at the beginning of the summer of 2000. We closed the round at the end of the summer of 2000. And we went almost straight into the venture capital round, and this was a completely different kettle of fish because, unlike the angel investors who were sold on a on a story and a dream and they, they they liked the picture we were painting, the venture capital investors wanted to see evidence that the technology would scale. They wanted to see proof that there was demand in the market. They wanted to have a plan for how we were going to you know build out the team and and run the operations. And we spoke to basically every VC in all of London. And they're all in Mayfair. And we we could navigate our way around Mayfair based on which VCs we had uh, spoken with. And pretty much every single one of them turned us down with just a couple of exceptions, two in the UK and one one in Belgium, as it happened. So it started becoming much more real at that point. Partly because it's a different league, partly because the market by then was in the doldrums. I think Shazam has to be one of the most
1: unusual startup stories ever to have been started in the Silicon Valley. And they're like, brilliant, let's take that to London and Belgium to fund it. <laughs> so I don't think they'll ever hear anyone else that chooses that route, but right. fair enough. In terms of how you actually got the product out there, like, for if, if anyone that remembers the start of Shazam, which sadly both Rich and I do, you used to have to, like, hold your phone in the air and phone up a number. You literally called a number and just waved your phone in the air during a rave for, like, a minute, and then, like, a minute later, you'd get a text back. What was the actual process going on behind the scenes? How do you make that even happen? Because yeah. even then,
0: that's revolutionary. That's right. So so because, you know, smartphones obviously just didn't exist, so the, the mechanism was it was just a simple voice call. So you dialed 2580, would make a voice call to our our voice response system and the system would listen to 15 seconds of of sound and they would hang up and it would take that song uh, clip and try to match it against the database and if and when it matched the user would get a text message with the name of the song and the artist and that text message would charge the user so it would cost 60p per use unfortunately the mobile operator would keep 60% of that revenue so we didn't really make much money off it. But that was the initial launch of the service. And behind that, there was a huge infrastructure of the music database, the IVR system, the system which sent out SMS, you know, recording the users' details and calls and so forth. So it was a massive... Uh, iceberg underneath and just that tiny little tip above, which was the 15 second chord. I mean, this was at the same
1: time where having a mini disc player was seen as super revolutionary yeah. and like MP3s weren't definitely going to catch on. So you were like, I've got disc, it's fine. But from a practical point of view, there really was no digital music. So how did you actually get that music into some digital library? Because it just didn't exist. So you must have some funny stories from I mean, I, I can only imagine in my head how you actually burn that many songs in, yes. in, in reality. So it must have been a bit of a farce.
0: That's right. So, so we discovered very quickly, exactly as I had said, that there was no database of digital music in the <laughs> UK. So Philippe, who has an unbelievable knack for coming up with match-winning deals, he did a deal with a distributor of music in the UK. So your, your, the biggest record shop, which was the Virgin's shop on, on Oxford Street, Sold about twenty thousand CDs, whereas the distributor E.U.K. had a hundred thousand CDs in its warehouse. So what we did was we created specially built machines, and we hired teams to locate inside the warehouse to be able to access the CDs and type in all the information about the record, the artist, the, the song title, etc., and then. Extract a fingerprint, which is what Shazam uses to identify music. Replace the CDs back on the on the shelf, and that's it. Uh, that's how we created that first fingerprint library. We hired a, an ex-US Marine called Bart, who ran the logistics of this operation and <laughs> commanded the teams of uh, of shifts, uh, which which made this thing happen. Was it twenty-four-seven? It was twenty-four-seven. Well, was it? End. Give yeah. us some give us some idea. Was it like in the
1: countryside? Was it central London? How many people were working there? Was it just? Tons of interns being abused,
0: like just, you know, sending CDs across in the millions. Like, be honest. No, it was actually, it was about an hour from from London, just West London, so quite accessible. And uh, it was this enormous warehouse and literally all these, you know, uh, these teams just working just around the clock to try to hit that launch deadline. And uh, it was absolute madness because it took us 13 months from the time we raised our venture capital round To actually launching the service and my big fear is that we'd run out of cash before we launch which is you know then it's it's all over my job was i was the product manager so i ran the teams to get to that uh, launch which was in the middle of the summer of 2002 so we went july 2001 was our funding the launch was August 19th, 2002, a date which is still the red-letter day, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how much did you raise for the VC round,
1: and what did you say you were going to did you, It was just literally, um, we're raising X, and we will launch the service by that time. I mean, is that basically what your, your like
0: your proposition was to venture capitalists? Yes. Yeah, so, so, we raised $8.5 million, uh, 5.3 million pounds in our first round, which... Now it just seems like a staggeringly large number. and back then it was even crazier because no one was writing checks because it was the, the funding markets had completely dried up. So we were exceptionally lucky to even get started, let alone survive you know seventeen years. What they wanted was they wanted some proof that people would use the service. So we did a big research study, you know proving the underlying demand. They wanted proof that the technology would scale, so we had to simulate running across you know, thousands and thousands of songs. And then after that, it was just a foot race to try to get everything ready for launch. And other things like, you know, I mentioned before, having the same short code across all the mobile operators. There was only one other company which had that, which was RAC Traffic Master. And the mobile operators had, had they never met a scruffy young startup trying to ask for the same number. So it was there was lots of stuff which had never been done before. You know, what's unusual about Shazam is it doesn't really seem from the outside you've ever had any competitors.
1: Is that true? I mean, like, were there people that tried to do what you did and how did it go for them? Yes,
0: there was a company uh, and still exists a company called uh, Soundhound which does similar music identification, but they use a completely different technology. So it's not about an exact match, which is how Shazam works. It's, it's, it's about a near match. So you can sing into it and it works. I mean, except if I sing, but then, then I've shown people that you can hum and it works. But there was a time when we were neck and neck but after that, they have fallen away and, and, and changed direction. So now it feels that it, uh, Shazam is the only game in town. But it w- wasn't always. We, we created the category of music identification over the mobile phone, but there were others in the field as well. And how did you
1: actually get people to find out about it? You know, I personally yeah. heard about it from my friends. I guess it's probably common from a lot of people. You see someone standing there with a phone up by a speaker, yeah. and there's no ever a circumstance ever in the world before that you'd have done that. So yeah. you usually go up and like, what are you doing? It was a good way to find out, yeah. but you must have had some budget for marketing and getting the word out there. So any good stories about some silly stunts you did
0: or marketing communications that went horribly wrong or anything like that? Yeah, so so we, we tried all kinds of things because we were on a, on a tiny budget. So I remember the DJ Magazine had, a, had an industry event so we, we signed up for a table and we infiltrated the toilets and plastered them with Shazam stickers and, which explained how it worked. And the main thing was we had to try to get the message out. You can use your mobile to identify music by dialing this number. And that seems simple now, but for a lot of people, they didn't know what we were talking about. So by far the most effective was radio advertising. And the way it worked was our marketing director, Vijay uh, Solanki, used to work in, in radio. And he designed an ad which would be the last ad in the ad break. And it would say, there's this new service, this is how it works, try it on the next song. And then the music would come on. We'd make sure we had that song in our database. And they were like, really? like are you serious? And they tried and it would work. And that's how we started getting the early traction and, and pickup. We tried lots and lots of things, but that was by far the most successful.
1: Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast but i just wanted to tell you a bit more about us we're a startup ourselves helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big hq we take care of the whole process from start to finish and our service is completely free check us out on contour.space so talking through some of the numbers, yes. I've once read somewhere about the growth of Shazam from start to finish. Just because it's such a cool thing to hear in its entirety, can you give a timeline of Shazam's download or user numbers from year one to year 17 to give some people some idea of just how slowly things actually grow in some of the
0: most successful companies in the world? Sure. I mean, so I remember when our target was, we launched in August, our target was 100,000 users by December. Which we hit, which was fantastic. The unfortunate side was that we weren't coming anywhere near generating enough revenue to, to cover our costs. But looking back now, the, the growth was exponential only after smartphones ca- came into the market. But to give, give you a, a feel for that the, was 2007, right? That was 2007. That was eight and eight years app, after yeah, you've launched. Correct. And uh, 2008 was when the App Store actually launched. But the first billion uses of Shazam took 10 years. The next billion took two months, Big took a year, and the next billion took two months. So that was the acceleration in, in, in the usage. And that came about because the user experience on the smartphone, on the iPhone, was what people expected. They, it was easy to use, and, and then that, that changed everything. What were your investors
1: like in the period of the first eight years where it's just such slow growth, and then how
0: thankful were they in the ninth year? Our investors were exceptionally patient and (laughs) occasionally grumpy. But uh, no, I think that uh, we were really lucky to be able to have survived uh, with their backing, as well as we had to get really creative. So at one point, what we did was we had a whole uh, number of patents around the technology. So a lot of investors would ask us if we had ideas for a business-to-business service. But we were really focused on business-to-consumer. However, under financial pressure, we built a business-to-business service, in other words, helping artists be paid by monitoring their music on radio stations, for instance. And we licensed that technology to a big company in, in the US and, in fact, sold our patent portfolio in order to raise the funds to be able to stay alive. After 2007, 2008, once the business consumer side was on a much sounder footing, we were able to buy back those patents but uh, we had to be pretty creative and fleet-footed just to, just to survive. So it's now been
1: 18 years since the company launched. You actually left um, with all your co-founders some time ago, yes. which is pretty common, I guess, in a lot of these high-growth companies. Yeah. But you know, looking back on the situation, yeah. What was it that led you and your three co-founders to leave? It was
0: all in the same year, right? Yes, that's right. So we all left around 2003. Avery actually rejoined afterwards, a year or two afterwards, and he, he still works there. Uh, so it's four years
1: into the journey, and you've taken it through its first funding round, its product market fit, and
0: its venture capital round. Yes. What then? So we had raised two or three. We had raised the second venture round, and we were on... Which how- was How much? order of magnitude, I think was about three and a half million pounds from memory, but I, I, I can't remember exactly. But we'd done the series B at, at that time as well. So I'm, I'm still a shareholder. All of us are still shareholders. We share a seat on the board. My business partner, Chris, is, is still actively involved. So we're still very much associated with the company, both kind of emotionally involved and financially involved, but not not the, uh, day-to-day. Yeah. But uh, one oh, of the... Sorry, sorry, just
1: as a yeah. case in point, yes. typically what happens, for anyone that doesn't know, typically what happens is you're given as a founder a certain period called a vesting period where you vest your shares, and it's usually about three or four years, and then basically you own all the shares you're ever going to have in that company, and nothing will really change that so much. So it's interesting timing very common timing really right you you you've already vested all of your
0: shares and given everything to the company it's pretty normal to back out at that time uh, yeah but also just to be just to be clear so the conditions of our funding was that we'd hire a CEO and so nowadays the thinking has changed you keep the founding team because they tend to be you know super passionate and super involved but back in the day that was really common so i had hired not only m- my boss but my boss's boss. So I was now sort of like two tiers down in the in the company. And so it was in good hands, it was professionally managed. And frankly, I was working 16, 17 hour days, you know, regularly, week in, week out. Uh, so you, you get to a point where there's more to life than just, just the startup. But uh, I left and I joined Save the Children. So I wanted to do something completely different and kind of give back rather than just think about you know building a business. Chris and Philippe went back to the Bay Area, both joined uh, Google. So Chris joined Google, Philippe joined YouTube. So they still had a taste for the startup life. So just going back to like the
1: moment you are leaving, was it your decision as a foursome? Was it individually and then it was like dominoes? Did your investors ask you to leave? How was that experience, you know, thinking back to it from a practical point of view, what really happened?
0: Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the company was really uh, in difficult times because we were losing money every month because we had an incredible burn with the team which was needed to sustain the business. And all the business models which we tried were just trickles of cash. So we had you know, voluntarily taken pay cuts, for instance. you know. But it was clear that for the survival of the company, we'd need to you know, trim back. And we, unfortunately, we had to. It was one of the saddest things is let people go. But for us it felt that the time was right like we had done our jobs we had yeah we'd fulfilled our roles you know and I can't speak for the others but for me personally I wanted to do something which gave back and considered others and not just about that that particular business and how different do you think the company has gone
1: in some respects from the original vision if you'd have stayed in there all four of you do you think it would have gone exactly the same way growth aside Let's assume you would have grown it to be as big, like product vision,
0: TV ads, all that kind of stuff, was that very much in the original thought process? You know, it's very strange because for many years, for about 10 years, Shazam followed exactly the original idea, which is use your mobile to identify music, and it just surpassed our, I guess, wildest expectations. Mm -hmm it's only in the last five or six years where there's much more about visual identification being able to interact with campaigns on tv and so forth that we hadn't thought about that at all and frankly it's a much more kind of like diverse and uh, contemporary business but almost bizarrely the joke was we had we had feature ideas back in 2000 which hadn't been built you know in 2010 so <laughs> we didn't do a number of Awkward pivots, let's put it that way. Okay, fair enough. Surely you're hoping that the company continues
1: its growth and goes towards a successful exit or an IPO or something and... Surely that then means you can actually be as rich as all your friends probably think you are. <laughs> so, you know, what, what is what is your expectation around that? Is it next year? Is it next five years? You're like, when the fuck is this thing gonna happen? We've got <laughs> a billion, three billion, whatever users. I mean, yeah. what
0: on earth does a man have to do to get his payday? Well, the funny thing is that the, the standard joke is Shazam is always two years away from exit. I met one of my investors uh, a few weeks ago and he's, he's, he's had a proper sense of humor failure. He doesn't want to hear we're two years away from exit. So I'm going to say a year and a half or less. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so watch the space. But you're right, it's a it's a, it's a mature startup. Let's, sure. let's be polite. Well, um, let, let's fast forward two years or less. Uh, what are you going to buy with all that money? It's not about money, frankly. I, I don't know if there's entrepreneurs in, in the room, but if you're setting up a business for the money, then that can be a, a big red herring. For me, it is very much about... The journey—it's very much about, you know, creating a business. It's very much about the relationships uh, which you build. You know, frankly, I—I I interact with founders, you know, every day, and you know, the, the ups and downs are are tremendous. So, I guess that what I, I quite enjoy now at this stage of my career is being able to do a number of different things. So, whether it is uh, investing, or whether it is uh, advisor a corporate finance company, or whether it is. Uh, you know, mentoring uh, startups. But if you've got to worry about you know paying the rent, then then you have less flexibility. So maybe a bit of life flexibility. Fair enough.
1: Can you share some insights? I mean, this has been really, obviously, very interesting about all the good times and stuff. But can you actually share some insights over the stress and some of the low points in your journey? Because obviously, founding a company is not all roses, and you hear that you know. Obviously, it took eight years to get to the first billion, but, you know, there must have been some incredibly tough moments in there as well. You know, from our point of view, it's always good to share um, any lessons around, you know, the tough moments and just being real about what was super difficult. Any lonely moments? Can
0: you give us any insights there? Yeah, I think, I think the toughest moment for me was I, I, I hired a, a really old friend of mine. Uh, we used to work together before Shazam, and uh, he came to me at, at one point. He said, you know, I'm working so hard that I don't have uh, any fresh food in my fridge. It just, it, it it's going off before I can eat it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here all the time, you know? And I was like, well, I don't know what to say. You know, we are where we are. And uh, unfortunately, a few weeks, a few months later, we had to let people go, and he was one of the people that we had to let go. And his, his flatmate came up to me in a pub and said, how could you, you know? Like, what do you mean? He's like, how could you, you know, rob him of his job? And I was like, Do you know what that feels like when you have to lay off one of your old friends? We used to go, like, every night together before we started the business. And then he's working for you, and then, you know, you have to let him go. It's terrible, you know. We had a guy we'd hired who had a four-week-old baby, and we had to let him go. And back in those days, if you lost your job in 2002, 2003, you couldn't just find another one just down the road. And we weren't, you know, paying people a, a big severance or anything like that. So it was quite painful the only thing which we avoided we never we were very conscious is that if you run out of cash you switch off the lights you let everyone go that that's you know game over we never got to that point but uh, we were in board meetings where if you have more liabilities than assets you're trading insolvent you are criminally liable as a board director they will lock you up so we check, are we solvent? Yeah, okay, we can keep going. But, you know, l- literally had to check on a week-by-week basis that we weren't uh, we weren't in
1: violation. You started with three founders. Like I said earlier, that's unusual and also awesome in its own way. Yeah.
0: Um, are you still all friends? Do you hang out? What's the situation with them? Yeah, so this, so I'm exceptionally good friends with, with all my co-founders. So I'm going to be back in San Francisco in a couple of weeks for my uh, business school reunion, and we're all going to catch up. And this is like one of these... Stories, which is made for TV, not because four guys get together, have a great time, and stay friends. There's, there's, there's no drama. But I think that the lesson for me was because we shared values in common, and because we trusted each other, it made for a stronger company, and it made for a group of friends which we kind of helped each other out through thick and thin. And I look back now and I'll give you a specific example. So when uh, we agreed to start the business. Chris volunteered to be CEO, and we said that that 's great, you know go for it." But he insisted that we divide the equity equally, so we all had a quarter of the business. so there was no there was no hierarchy. we were all equals. That set the tone for the interactions and I think that you know if I were to give any advice to an entrepreneur it would be you know pick the people who uh, will stand by you when when times are tough because they are plenty of tough times and not just in business but in, in in anything i think having that set of values is so important and unfortunately in business and in life people take shortcuts they cut corners they'll you know be opportunistic and uh, we'll we're, we're, we're lucky that uh, at the core we had a, that, that that friendship you mentioned
1: earlier you do lots of uh, mentorship and investing and you know you you help young founders yeah. um Build businesses now. Yeah. So, what are some of the things that you see them doing? In case anyone's listening, we're in the room. Common mistakes you see those founders do that you try and get out of them. Try and make them think about it a different way. There's some things that really wind you up that
0: you see them doing. It's so kind of case by case, but unfortunately, when you start a business, you you know you think big and and you you see the opportunity, which is exactly as it should be. And I, I still tend to think like an entrepreneur. But with the experience, you can see where the potholes and the traps are. So what I do is to say, if you put a contract in place with one company, make sure you've identified another one in case the first one falls through. If you uh, sign up an advisor, make sure that you have a clawback provision if they don't deliver. You know? So all the um, hedging and the plan Bs, which is not necessarily instinctive to, to entrepreneurs, is what I can help them with. But more of the time, it's more about the emotional the emotional aspect of trying to find the right hire, and, and etc., and connecting with the right people. Who do you invest
1: in? Who do you advise? How, what's the spark? Is it like the person has so much energy, you just have to help them because you feel that vibe? Or is it their idea? Does it have to be both?
0: How do you pick? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. I won't name names, but I heard an uh, well-known entrepreneur speak the other day. And she said that she had a project with a paid client and the programmer she was working with quit. So she taught herself to program in order to deliver the project so she could keep the money that she had already charged. Now, that is a really good example, an indicator of a true entrepreneur. And so you, you see those traits coming through when you, when you talk to, to entrepreneurs. I mean, they, I can't generalize, but those, they, they, you get these strong signals where whatever it takes to make it happen, What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think as as an entrepreneur, uh, it's just make sure you raise enough money. Don't run out of cash, make sure you have enough money. That was the best piece of advice. It's it's very tried, It's you hear it all the time. But the best question actually I, I was asked, which when I was working at Oracle for a summer when I was in, in Silicon Valley, I had my boss's boss was French. And he'd walk by and he'd say, are you having fun? And that's all he ever said to me. And I, I said, yeah, I'm having fun, you know. But that, to me... You can't have fun working for Oracle. Oh, you can, absolutely. I, I, I was having a, a fantastic time. But I think my philosophy is, you know, if you're enjoying the experience, it's all good. And if you're not, then something has gone wrong. And unfortunately, being an entrepreneur, is it's a job. It's a way to you know earn a living. It's not life. And my heart goes out to those... Uh, I, I, uh, an entrepreneur came up to me on the train and said, oh, I heard you speak at this event. I said, yes, nice to meet you. So he, he pitched me uh, his business and he said, would you like to have a co- coffee and talk about it? I said, sure. So when I met up with him, he told me that he had a rogue investor who was threatening to bankrupt the business. His fiance had left him because she couldn't deal the, with the stress. He was sleeping on friends' couches just to make ends meet. All right, so what I did, I went home that night and I emailed all my entrepreneur friends who could you know, help him out. And I heard from him a few months ago to say he had managed to find an investor to buy out the the rogue investor, and he's got his business back on track. And that made me incredibly happy. So the hard times he went through are so much worse than anything I can describe. But that's that that's the only thing I would say is that it's a life choice. It's it's not it's not life yeah. itself. Okay. So at one point, Shazam was the most innovative product, certainly in music
1: anyway, in the whole entire world. What is your prediction for where it's going? What's the what are you excited about in the future of music or just the future of product in general? Give us some idea of what we can look forward to.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm heavily influenced by the fact that I've got young kids. So I look at the world through their eyes, and they have no limitations about what's possible. I'll give you an example. So most recently, I was head of innovation at Virgin Money, so I was working in financial services. Now, I don't know if there's people here who are passionate about their pension, for instance. Anyone? Anyone? No. But it's, it's really important, Theodore and it's not something which people engage with but bringing money to life for instance and making it fun and instinctive is what i find really exciting and that could be you know using virtual reality it could be using games so you know you get your head around compound interest the the human brain doesn't tend to work in that way but one can use technology to bring that life and frankly having a sound financial footing is much more important than finding out what that song is and i think the opportunities are going to be incredible so everything that's gone in the past is is great but i think we're going to have so many new ways of getting rid of some of the human biases and failings that we have so you know you've not mentioned but do you not reckon that we're
1: just not going to need our phones you'll be able to like hear a song and think of it and shazam's going to be able to
0: tell you what it is at that point i think that's going to happen on the inside of your mind yeah i definitely think so i think i think the combination of you know, an amb- an ambient uh, external sound and uh, the brain activity will will send the signal to identify that song. Yeah, piece of cake. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. Thank and, you so um, much. I yeah. really appreciated... Uh, Thank you to d really appreciate it. Thank you very, very much.
1: Next week on Secret Leaders.
0: So I thought, okay, if someone else could do this, open a chain of organic supermarkets, there's no reason I can't. So I did. And I got experience. I learned about organic. I realised I loved it. I have the mind for retail because I am a detail person. So it all worked. And then I was turning 30 and I thought, now's my moment.
1: That was Renee Elliott, the founder of Planet Organic, the first of its kind organic superstore in the UK. Renee has an eye for meaningful trends, clearly. She discusses not only healthy eating, but co founder Fallout, and the stress that comes with working in an office with a business partner that's trying to sue you. It's not one you'll want to miss, so tune in or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for secret leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.